This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Christiana Rickard, the niece of Ray Bolger, the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, is with us in Hour 1. And uh, Dr. Lynn Kitai, the foremost authority on the Phoenix Lights mass UFO sighting in hour two. Hard to believe that's been over 21 years. March of 97. Uh, I had a great time at Occulticon up in Holstein, Ontario. And I want to express my sincere thanks to Cayman Mythwood and Pam and all of the staff. It was a terrific conference. One of the, the most organized a smoothly run, uh, enjoyable conferences I've ever uh, either participated in or even attended. So well done. Um, This was the second year up in Holstein, Ontario, up in the escarpment, if you go up Highway 10, way north of Brampton, and then kind of west of there. Um, Anyway, they took good care of me, and um, I uh, had a wonderful time, and I got uh, this wonderful parting gift. Can you see that on the the webcam? Mints. And it's a Ouija board. What does it say? Mystifying mints. It was worth the trip to Holstein just for those. But anyway, um, and uh, and Cayman gave me a tour of the uh, the Mythwood event grounds, which is 60 acres, heavily wooded. They've got uh, seasonal campers up there. They build their own little cabins. Remarkable what he's done. And um, he tells me that, you know, within a few weeks... Uh, he takes about a month off after putting this event together, which ran for three days, uh, the, uh, Friday, Saturday, and today, Sunday, and I spoke on Saturday. And um, the, after about a month, he'll start putting together, uh, t- putting together next year's conference. So keep checking back to occulticon.ca, occulticon.ca. Uh, and uh, hopefully next year will be as smashing a success as this year's was. And it was great meeting some of my listeners up there as well. Uh, next week on the program, Mick West, author of Escaping the Rabbit Hole, How to Debunk Conspiracy Theories Using Facts. Now, 
It's not uh, the type of program I usually do, having debunkers on, but I thought this would be interesting, and uh, I will certainly push back here and there where appropriate, but I think it'll be a, a good discussion, and good for him uh, for coming on the program and sort of hanging fire. Um, that's coming up next week, and then in the, uh, the second hour uh, of next week, we have cryptozoologist and folklorist Ronald Murphy who's been described as the guru of cryptozoology, cryptozoology. Uh, that's the second hour. Should be a good show. Good job uh, lining that up, Albert. Let me introduce the boys in the band. It's been several weeks since we've all been assembled under one roof. We're, we've been in kind of summer mode, madly off in all directions. On the flying V Gibson guitar, on the other side of the glass, technical producer Ian Robertson. Now, Ian, uh, before we get started, the um, give us a status report on the uh, the debut album from the Grease Marks. Uh, when is th- that you recorded in Los Angeles a while ago? When is that coming out? Uh, so it's fully out now. You can go to greasemarks.com and order it. Uh, physical form. We aren't doing digital just yet. Uh, and will there be a, a vinyl yes, issue in the future? Yeah. Okay. And you showed me the cover art for that. It was fantastic. It looked like a kind of a, a graphic novel. Uh, very well done. Very proud of you. Uh, and then on this side of the glass, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar and occasionally the theremin, my story producer, Albert Vinzel. Albert, welcome. And finally, but uh, least but not last, or last but not least, rather, on the Hammond B3, our live stream producer, Ryan White. Gentlemen, uh, thank you all. Uh, the program would not be possible without you. All right, back in May, Jerry Marin... Who was Jerry Marin, you ask? Well, he was the last surviving munchkin from the Wizard of Oz. He died at 98 due to complications from congestive heart failure, according to his family. Marin died in his sleep on May the 24th at a private home care residence in La Jolla, California, where he had been in hospice care for six months. He stood four foot three and acted in over 100 movies and TV shows over the past 70 years. But he's perhaps best remembered, of course, for his role in the 1939 classic The Wizard of Oz. Hard to believe that that movie was made almost 80 years ago. Uh, and for many of us, of course, Dorothy, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and of course the Scarecrow remain among the most enduring characters in both literature and film, and we're going to take a peek behind the scenes of the great movie, A True American Fairy Tale, with the niece of the Scarecrow, Ray Bolger, uh, of course. Christiana Rickert grew up in Los Angeles in a large family of artistic people, which included, of course, her very famous uncle. Uh, Chris was close to her family and helped care for them in their final days. Her memories inspired her book, A Legend in Straw which reveals the secrets she learned from her uncle. She now lives in Texas, where she's working with other women to develop new styles of leadership for a challenging world. She's attended numerous Oz events around the the, uh, country uh, with her friend Vincent Morand, who painted the portrait of the cover of her book. And Chris... uh, Uh, has a a B.A. in theater. She holds an ecumenical spiritual director's certificate. She's an animal lover with five dogs and one beautiful cat, all uh, cohabiting peacefully under one roof. Uh, Christiana Rickard, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Hi, Richard. Thank you so much. Listen, that music that you opened with was uh, pretty incredible. And uh, my first thought was my Uncle Ray would have loved this, and it reminded me a bit of the Jitterbug 
number that was removed from the movie. Oh, there was a jitterbug m- a number that was removed? I oh, yeah, there was a, a, a song called The Jitterbug, which was a quite a big, long num- dance number. Um, and it, that was cut from the movie, yeah. As, as well as something else that was cut was that, you know, my, my Uncle Ray's, um, you know, if I only had a brain number, was cut way down, too, in terms of the length of the dance. Oh, now, yeah. How did how did he how did he land that role? He was originally supposed to be the Tin Man, wasn't he? He was supposed to be the Tin Man, and you know he he never he 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 loved the Scarecrow all of his life, and always wanted to play the Scarecrow, and was very inspired by Fred Stone, who played the Scarecrow on on Broadway, mm-hmm. and he had seen that, and uh, so he you know he fought for the part. He just said he wanted you know he was just meant to play the scarecrow so um he just with my along with my aunt you know they just worked hard to get him the part and buddy epson was nice enough to step aside and let him take the part now and, buddy uh, epson wasn't out well <laughs> buddy epson also wasn't he also supposed to play the tin man originally but he had an allergic reaction to the paint yes well that, that's because he was originally to play the scarecrow and so when my uncle Ray stepped into the scarecrow role, he took on the Tin Man role and got very sick and had to drop out. And that's when Jack Haley took right. the role of the, of the Tin Man. Ah, amazing! So yeah, so Buddy Edson was out of the picture and quite ill, and then Jack Haley had um, a bit of a struggle with the makeup, also, but um, you know, nothing, nothing too serious. And and how. What was it like? I mean, you you must have just... I can't imagine how wonderful it would have been to sit around and talk to your Uncle Ray. Uh, and and um, he he was married... Was it your mother's... Or your father's sister? He married your yes. father's sister. Yes, that's right. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's... Was he just as, as, as kind and lovable in real life as he was on the screen? He was. He was. And... Uh, Tonight, uh, just just before the show, I uh, just for the fun of it, I googled him, and do you know every time I do this, the number of pictures and things from his life and career it, it just doubles and triples. So my heart is just so full tonight, looking over all these, so many of them from his career, from early days, from things I've never ever seen before, and so. You know, this is one of the joys of of the internet is that people can just uh, see so much more, and uh, you know, of of what his career was was all about and who he was. Yeah, he was so well loved, and um, you know, he's just a, he's just a part of everybody's life. I think. Right. Oh, he's, <laughs> you know, he's course, everyone's yeah. uncle. He's everyone's uncle. Yeah, that's basically true, and. Um, when I when I wrote the little book, it's kind of a memoir. You know, it's, it's not a it's not a full biography of my uncle, but it's my my life with my uncle and the things that he taught me. And um, you know, and I and I know that I know how people feel about the scarecrow. You know, like I just know because I know what he meant to us. And um, you know, there was just something so touching about him, and he had that big heart and. His whole career, basically, you know, what he said, I mean, from early days in vaudeville, he just, he wanted to make people happy, you know? Yes, yes. And that was what he thought his job in life was. So he was, uh... Did he ever play a villain in the movies? 
Uh, yes, well, he did actually. You know, he played a villain, not a very serious villain, but he played Barnaby in Babes in Toyland. Ah, uh, yes. Which was a Walt Disney picture. It was kind of a, you know, a Disney-style sure. villain. I can't. Im- did. Yeah. I can't imagine. And, um, I can't imagine Ray Bolger as a heavy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a pretty. You know, it wasn't a very heavy movie, but um, it was a fun kind of a fun diabolical villain who danced and all, and and that was a fun memory because we um, we all got to go to the rap party, uh, which was held out at Walt Disney's ranch. Oh, wonderful! One, yeah. When we were about ten years old, so I have some nice pictures of him in that uh, in his Barnaby costume dancing, and that was a fun memory. What were his 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 memories of of um, of uh, the other characters? Uh, you know, Jack Haley and uh, oh, well, Bert Lahr, the Cowardly all, Lion. All good, all so good. And uh, Jack Haley was a neighbor actually in Beverly Hills. And they were friends and went to the same church and were very close. And um, they all got along brilliantly. They were all, you know, Jack Haley and Bert Lahr right. and Uncle Ray were all vaudevillians. Mm-hmm. And so they had a lot in common and uh, great camaraderie. They loved Judy Garland, of course. Right, right. Um, was, did well, he suspect then that that she was being maybe mishandled or taken advantage of? Uh, at that point, or had that really started? Gosh, you know what? He he never alluded to that. Um, in my personal experience with him, I've never, I never heard him speak to that. I know he was super fond of her and very devastated when she died, and you know knew that she had problems. You know the extent to which they knew about those things, I don't know. I don't know. It'd be, yeah, I'd be interested to know whether she ever turned to him, you know, later in life when, when things got difficult for Christine, yeah. Christiana will take a time yeah. out. We'll come back. Chris Rickard is here, the niece of the great Ray Bolger, the scarecrow from The Wizard of Oz, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Coming up in Hour 2, Dr. Lynn Katai from the uh, Phoenix Lights. It's been over 21 years, and uh, Dr. Lynn will be speaking at the um, MUFON Symposium 2018 down in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, sort of in the greater Philadelphia area. And uh, she'll be along. She'll be one of the featured speakers. Incidentally, the timing of that is quite interesting. Uh, July the 27th, I believe it kicks off, the 27th, 28th, and 29th. Last week we had uh, Dr. John Brandenburg on the program talking about... It was last week, wasn't it, uh, Albert? Yes. We were talking about uh, Mars. And uh, so July 27th is that particular date, is the uh, the date of the, uh, the lunar eclipse. It'll be a blood moon. And also, Mars will be the closest it's been to uh, Earth in 15 years. Very propitious. Now, as I went out to the uh, parking lot to let... Um, Albert and Ryan into the uh, the building, and uh, beautiful um, uh, the moon, kind of a crescent moon with Venus 
right there, very visible. So lots going on in the night skies. All right, we are delighted to have uh, Christiana Rickard, Chris Rickard, with us, the niece of uh, Ray Bolger, the Scarecrow. Hard to believe it's been nearly 80 years since The Wizard of Oz uh, came out back in 1939. And uh, we were talking about some of the other cast members and, and how your uncle got along with, with them. Um, is there, now, we should point out that uh, OzCon 2018, this is a, um, a conference celebrating the Wizard of Oz, is uh, going to be taking place August the 10th to the 12th in California. Where specifically will that be, uh, Chris? Oh, it's, um, it's, at a, it's, held in, it's going to be in Pomona, California this year. It's held at a place called the Kellogg Conference Center, and I'm really looking forward to it. This year it's... Um, focused on the Tin Man, and uh, so I was kind of surprised to get an invitation from them. I'm really uh, looking forward to it, and I've made friends uh, with um, Jack Haley's grandson, Mm. and he is such a nice guy, and we have such a nice time, you know, communicating on Facebook and stuff, so I'm really looking forward to spending a little time with him, because his grandfather and my Uncle Ray, as I said, were just neighbors on the same street in Beverly Hills, went to the same church, and he met my Uncle Ray when he was younger. So um, anyway, I, I enjoyed your mention of the crescent moon with the star, because I happened right before the show, I looked up and saw that. That's always been my favorite um, sky, is the crescent moon with that star, and I wondered what it symbolized. Hmm. You know, and I don't know if you know or not, but it's interesting that you mention it because it's a... Uh, I don't, but uh, that's, big, that's it's, Venus, it's I guess we're looking big, at. You know, yeah, Venus, yeah, yeah, Venus. Yes, it's 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 bright and it is beautiful. Um, mm, yeah. You, your uncle helped you. you. You received a devastating diagnosis. Was it thyroid cancer? Yes, it was, yeah. How long ago was it that? Was, that was, uh, oh gosh, it's been about... Um, Oh, it's about 16 years ago now. It's been quite a long time ago. and uh, So this is after I, he died, but so his... but his. It was after he died, right. yeah. It was after he died. And um, what happened was, uh, you know, first of all, there are several different kinds of thyroid cancer. And, uh, the one I got is the middle kind, so it's not fatal, but it's not the very benign kind either. So it was enough to be quite scary. And... Uh, I, uh, my Uncle Ray was gone at the time. He passed away also of cancer. But, uh, you know, it was just a remarkable journey. And I, and I, uh, it took me so deeply into my roots, my childhood, all my memories of my Uncle Ray and my aunt and my family. Because, you know, my mom was on Broadway with Uncle Ray. My dad was a writer. And they were just a very close-knit family. So I kind of reviewed my whole life and, um, just wanted to write down for people some of these ideas that helped me so much uh, getting through that cancer. Really uh, valuable ideas uh, that tied in with my Uncle Ray's life and the story of The Wizard of Oz and the movie, just experiences I had with my aunt and uncle in life, and uh, mainly to give people a, you know, a, some way to navigate their own journey. And at the same time, get to know these messages that my Uncle Ray gave me that made a big impression on me. Well, what, give me and, an example of a message that he gave you that you, that you used during your, your battle with cancer. Okay, well, the whole, the whole book is 
the whole book, this little memoir of mine, is is totally dedicated to that. So, um, you know, some some of the messages. You know, one message is always be yourself. Uh, don't try to be anything that you're not. And so, in the book, then I would you know tell why he emphasized that, how that shows up in the you know in the Wizard of Oz story, and then how it showed up in his life. You know why he why he thought that was important, right? And uh, that's one. And then the other one is uh, you know another chapter is on the yellow brick road, having to do with where do you stand in a life? You know where are what's your grounding? What are you grounded in? And um, what he thought about that topic, and then how how that topic is exemplified in the in the movie or the book. You know, right? So it's like a I braided three three life stories, kind of his life, what we see in the picture, in the movie, and then, you know, what he told me about it and my personal experience and how these things all came together. Right. So, you know, I, I wrote the book in such a way that by the end of the book, I feel, you know, my goal was to give people some of this juice that my Uncle Ray had. You know, he was kind of... Um, bigger than life in, in some ways. He was a very kind of electrifying person and um, kind of a, uh, he was a spiritual person. He had enormous amounts of energy and talent, and you know, he was quite a strong um, influence in our lives, for sure. How did he learn to dance? How did he learn to dance? Well, he started out, I mean, his, you know, his legendary story is he went to a waltz with a at high school, and he was a, a terrible wallflower, and he couldn't dance, and he made a fool of himself. So he decided he had to go out and get some basic, you know, basic steps. And what happened was, he was taking a, uh, he, he was hanging outside of a dance school and learning some steps and all. And and a and a famous Russian ballet master actually saw him and was interested in training him. Now, at this time, my Uncle Ray was almost a, uh, like a street boy. He grew up in uh, Dorchester, Massachusetts. His mother passed away when I think he was 14 or 15, and his dad kind of took off. And so Uncle Ray's uh, sister went to live with another part of the family, and then he was on his own completely. So he started his life uh, very young and got got interested in dancing just for that reason, because he was bad at it. And and he had an amazing body. He was born with this. I mean, oh, his balance, his balance. Yeah, his balance was incredible. Yeah. And these this these legs, you know, the, just the way he was put together, his body, long, long legs and so limber. And um, not really just, it just came naturally to him. And so he studied a lot, and, uh, you know, then he started in vaudeville. And it all just kind of evolved, um, you know, bit by bit. Then he came to, um, he was with Gus Edwards, you know, he was with a vaudeville show. It came to Los Angeles, and that's where he met uh, my aunt. Now, she was um, selling her musical Song. She was only 16 at the time, and they they had they fell in love. It was love at first sight, and uh, they were just teenagers. But they started and they made a um, 
they worked together for the you know for the rest of time. She just managed his career, you know, um, read all the scripts, handled all the finances. So another part of the book that I wrote was to show what a man and a woman, or the male and the female together, uh, what a what a dynamic team they made. What how their talents. Uh, you know, were so synergistic. They made a wonderful success of their lives and his career. And, you know, it's just remarkable how they worked together. It was just remarkable. She was very creative and talented also. So um, They didn't die too far apart, um, did they? Ten years, actually. Oh, it was ten years. I thought, I'm yes. sorry, I thought they both died the same year. I, I, I misread the bio- well, biography then. All right. Well, that's okay. You know what? Because it was, I think it was 87... And then she passed away in 1997. Oh, no, but she's had 10 years oh, beyond that, okay. which was just, it was just remarkable. And uh, so, you know, I, I tell about their relationship and how they met and just how these things unfolded. And, um, you know, to kind of give people a feeling of sometimes how destiny works and, you know, uh, listening to your heart and all of these themes. But, um, Back to the OzCon, I, I was just going to say there's a, you know the lots of interesting people coming, and uh, I had never known that there were all of these Oz groups across the country, you know, who are very very interested in Oz. I, I didn't know anything about that until until I wrote my little book and someone invited me to come to one. Right. So um, there'll be all these people there who are very enthusiastic about Oz, and it's it's really kind of nice to see. Um, I mean, the movie just does not, it, it, it's got something so um, deeply um, allegorical or something, sure. you know, about well, I mean, human, human life. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it is one of the, old. it's one of the oldest stories, really, and it's a, it's a hero's journey, basically, right? It's a, it's a hero's journey, that's exactly right. That's exactly right, and I, and I think, um, I mean, there's just something so magical about the way, the way the story fell together in terms of, all these characters who are, are missing pieces of themselves, and it takes all of them working together, you know, to get the outcome that they want. Right. And uh, I, 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 you know, I, I make a lot of pitches in the little book um, for, um, you know, the world that we live in today, you know, the, the necessity of us people working together and, um, you know, People not having to be perfect, not having to be famous, not having to be all of that, but but having to rely on one another, you know, and um, why that works out better when people cooperate, and those are kind of my opinions, you know. (laughs) What do you, in terms of the archetypes, I mean, obviously Dorothy's the protagonist, and the Wicked Witch is the, or Miss, uh, is it Gulch? Um, yeah, Miss Gulch. Yeah, Miss right. Gulch. They're the nem- she's the nemesis. Um, I suppose Glinda would be, you know, the, the the good witch. She's the mentor. But what what mm-hmm. what, are the, what what archetypes are do the the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, your uncle, and and uh, the Cowardly Lion? What what are what roles do they fill? What are the, what's the archetype? Well. First of all, you know, my opinion is, you know, with any, like, a great work of literature or anything, it's uh, very subjective. So people can see whatever they want to see, but I think in the most obvious fashion, you know, the archetype for me of the Scarecrow is, um, 
Well, he represents, you know, a fellow who doesn't have a brain. And so he's kind of, you know, he's a symbol of a, of a, he's a straw man. And, uh, you know, what hap- you know, what happens when you're lacking a, if you're lacking a brain or you're lacking a heart or you're lacking the courage? I mean, these are, you know, just human traits. Um, you know, that it's, in one way or another, we're always deficient in some area. Right, right. And so, you know, un- unless, you in- unless you embrace that uh, and join with other people and say, okay, you know, this is my deficiency or this is my weak point. I need some help over here from you. So I, I kind of look at the whole thing as just sort of one human consciousness uh, that's divided into these characters, you know, uh, these symbolic characters, right? And um, right, and you know, the, 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 so you can really relate to to every character in the story. Sure, sure. It, you they, know, every single one of them. But in my case, I got fascinated uh, with the scarecrow image. I uh, kind of always was my whole life because, um, kind of, kind of interesting. But you know, when you're family member and you're little, it is the scarecrow. Um, you know, it's like there was no separation. He was our uncle. We were very close to him. And then he was also on TV as in this scarecrow costume. You know, it's kind of like they're blended. They're sort of blended. But, um, yeah, you know. I remember as a child watching The Wizard of Oz, and my uh, my sister and I, would we would run out of the room... Uh, when the um, when the Wicked Witch came on, but I was oh, I'm t- to this day the flying monkeys, just they frighten the the heck out of me. <laughs> Were you affected by the movie that way? Were you frightened by? Yes, frightened by the monkeys. Too too terrifying. Had to leave the room definitely. You know what? Just today, um, I never knew. I should have, but I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm not a Wizard of Oz authority by any means. And there are many who are, but there are uh, that the monkeys were. Um, some of them were rubber, and some of them were, you know, people in costumes. And uh, I didn't even know that. But boy, were they frightening! Yes, you know, to this they day. Were, yeah, yeah, it's uh, they were. They were. That show was terrifying, you know, for people. And and I think that's part of the, uh, you know, that's part of the magic of it. You know, that we all endured that frightening experience together as children. Right. You right. know, watching watching all of that. And uh, Did you ever you know, meet, was, did you meet Margaret Hamilton, who played the, the Wicked Witch? No, I never, I never met her. Uh, but, you know, Uncle Ray did talk about her, and uh, they loved her, and she was a, just a sweetheart. She was a, she was a school teacher prior to this, and... Um, I just was reading something he said about her. Oh, no, no, I was listening to something about her. Um, he was so impressed with her intellect, and she was very involved with ecology and nature and all sorts of things I remember like that. As a, I remember as a kid, she was in those, was it Maxwell House, the coffee commercials? Yes, that's right. And that, for me, that, yes. that humanized her, and so I wasn't as afraid anymore of the Wicked Witch when I saw her on The, yeah. on, uh, the Wizard of Oz. Oh, we'll take a time out, Chris. Stay with us. We'll come back. Okay, the Conspiracy sure. Show, the niece of Ray Bolger, the Scarecrow, was with us on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the World and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The website is strangeplanet.ca, and there you can find the radio page for The Conspiracy Show, the uh, the links to the podcasts, and all my other projects are right there. There's a live events page. I, I was mentioning before that uh, this Saturday I was up at Occulticon up in Holstein, Ontario. Beautiful. It's up on the escarpment north of Brampton on Highway 10, and uh, uh, it's funny because I was taking part in a paranormal roundtable, and uh, the... Um, the, I was the only, I was kind of an outsider. Everyone else at the table, they were Wiccans. And uh, it was it was pretty hot and steamy on that uh, on, on Saturday up there. And so I was uh, sitting beside um, a, a gentleman by the name of, who goes by the, the handle Freighter Arceus. And um, I said, are, he says, I don't know about you. I said, but I'm melting. Are you? And he said, no, I'm not that kind of witch. <laughs> Which kind of harkens back <laughs> to the Margaret Hamilton character, of course, yeah. the Wicked Witch. Yeah. Um, Chris Rickard is uh, with us. Um, what we were, before the break, we were talking about uh, Margaret Hamilton. You hadn't met her, but your, your, uh, your uncle Ray ha- thought very highly of her. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, they did a play together on Broadway. I think it was called Come Summer. Um, yeah, they were good friends, very good friends. And how much time did you spend with your with your uncle growing up? Were they were they were they close to you? I mean, it, I mean, geographically, were you close to their place? Yeah, they were. Uh, well, you know, our family was a little unusual. In uh, we spent a lot of time with them, but um, the main reason was my aunt uh, married Uncle Ray, and as, but as I said, he was almost like an orphan. He really didn't have much family. My aunt had three brothers, and they all stayed together. So it was as if Uncle Ray joined the family with all these. They all became brothers. So my Aunt Gwen took quite a lot of pride in bringing him into this family. So they all remained in Los Angeles, and so we all, you know, that's where we grew up. They lived in Beverly Hills. We lived over the hill in Burbank. So, you know, we went when I was little. We'd go over almost every Sunday. And... um but yeah, my aunt, my aunt, and my uncle, you know, um, spent a lot of time in New York, uh, back and forth. They lived in both places, L.A. and New York. And um, you know, at different times, my dad would be in New York with them. He was a television producer early on, and they all, but they all stuck together and helped each other. My aunt and her three brothers and Uncle Ray, they were uh, very, very close. So we saw them almost on all holidays, of course. And then any time we just wanted to go over and visit. And um, so, yeah, they were, you know, they're very, it was a very close group. Very interesting group of people. And did you meet, uh, did you meet Bert Lahr, the, the Cowardly Lion? No, I never did. In fact, I, I never did meet any of the characters from The Wizard of Oz. Uh, and obviously, I mean, it's been, it's been nearly 80 years. Is there what anyone who is connected with that production that's still alive. I know we just lost the, the last of the Munchkins, Jerry Marin, back in last May. last of the Munchkins. Is anyone, yeah, from the show itself? I don't know to tell you. I'm, uh, I don't, 
not that I'm aware of, uh, you know, in terms of a, of a tech person or something like that. Right. But, um, They'd have to have been very, the, they would have had to have been very, very young, and now they would obviously be yeah, very, very old. Very, 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 very young, yeah. So, no, I, I don't think so. But, um, you know, I wanted to say something, because I, I know you have a conspiracy show, and I was kind of thinking, well, I don't have anything very conspiratorial to say, but... One of the things I find interesting is uh, I, you know, on YouTube and things. Yes, there you do see a lot of uh, well, strange things about the Wizard of Oz. Yes, you know, of course. With... There's always this little cult that there were odd things and and people dying and all of that. I don't think any of that is true. But the other thing that I see most recently is, um, you know, uh, concerns about all of the occultic. Right. meanings of the movie right. or the, you know the story whatever right it was supposedly and, uh, used as in in um in project monarch which was part of mk ultra yes I, right the, yes. the, the movie yes. was no, made I, i'm and, aware of all of that yeah. i certainly am I, I i look at it i'm interested but i will tell you this i don't put uh i i, I don't put much stock in it in terms of the original you know l frank Baum stories uh now his his uh, his fan, you know he was into theosophy and that yes. was kind of a spiritualist movement at the time, and uh, but but I still you know I still think the important thing is you know I, I don't like to see the movie turned into something kind of you know nefarious dark or dark or right. totally mysterious and right. we we never had any inkling of that at all you know we, my uncle Ray talked about you know. Um, it, you know, basically, it was a great experience. There's now lots and lots of difficulties and, um, you know, uh, challenges with the production and all the different directors and, you know, the costuming and the heat and all of that. But, but, but he was so proud of the production. You know, it's like so many innovations taking place in the movie and the fantastic score and the music and all that. I mean, it's also positive in my mind. That, so I just sort of don't, you know, I hope it stays more positive. And, you know, with so many spinoffs and things now, and they get a little stranger as the years go by. Right. What do you make but, of uh, Wicked, which is actually playing here in Toronto? And it's been, it's, it's been around for many, many years. I remember Earth, I know. Eartha Kitt, and, and, yeah, of course, played just, uh, The Witch. Hor- I've never seen it, and I and I think that's just terrible. At first, I didn't want to see it. That's many years ago. Now I think I really should go and see it. You know, um, I love The Wiz, and that was great. Uncle Ray loved The Wiz as oh, well. Mm-hmm. Thought it was great. Not the movie, but the this Broadway play. Sure. You know, and I haven't seen Wicked. I know it sounds strange, but I I I haven't seen it. What would your um, What would your uncle make of of Hollywood today? Golly. Oh man. Well, I think I think um probably he'd be pretty pretty appalled, but but I can't say for sure. You know, he was he was such an artist and he liked being um contemporary and up to date on things. You know, he wasn't like an old timer, he never had that kind of feel to him. He was always trying to stay current with things. So, you know, I don't know how how he would be, except I know, you know, as a dancer, he was so disciplined a person and um, so professional in, in, in his approach to things. And, 
you know, that that made a big impression on me as a kid also, you know, just, just the way he lived and all of that and very disciplined. Uh, all right, Chris, we're going to so, take a quick so, yeah. time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to yeah. talk about the Scarecrow, Ray Bolger okay. with Chris Rickard. <laughs> back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. A bit of a departure for us on The uh, the Conspiracy Show. We're talking with uh, Chris Rickard, who is the niece of the late, great Ray Bolger, of course, who played the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. And uh, her book, A Legend in Straw, The Spirit of My Uncle Ray Bolger, available at Amazon. And she'll be attending OzCon 2018 uh, from August 10th to the 12th in Pomona, California. And uh, you can register at OzConInternational.com. OzConInternational.com. Again, August 10th to the 12th in at the uh, Kellogg West Conference Center in Pomona, California. You were mentioning, you know, there was some innovative stuff that was happening on the uh, on that uh, on the set of The Wizard of Oz, and uh, of course, I, I remember that scene that was also very frightening when your uncle Ray uh, was set on fire. Of course, the scarecrow was set on oh, fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then there was a couple of scenes where the the, the witch uh, Margaret Hamilton was uh, you know burned, and she actually suffered some injuries. I think wasn't she burned twice? Couldn't say. I really don't know for sure about that. Oh, was um, was your uncle ever injured or during the during filming in any way? Well, he I, I know he fainted a few times on from the heat from the lights. Um, he wasn't permanently injured. I know that you know he had some damage to his face, but I think it was temporary from the um, you know the the makeup the makeup yeah from the makeup on his face and. Um, yeah, that was. I think the makeup was a big ordeal for everybody. So it was about two hours to put it on every day in the morning, you know. Right. And I, it, it left some lines and things, but not not permanent. There was also talk so, about the, uh, the, the the fake snow that was used was asbestos fibers. Um, mm. Was there any thought that the, I don't know how did your your uncle died of cancer? But was there any concern that exposure to asbestos on the set may have made him ill? Never heard about that. It certainly is a possibility, although it was many, many, many years later. Um, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a possibility. But uh, I don't know. Cancer so rampant now. Yes. You know, and uh, my aunt also had cancer, you know, had, had a double mastectomy and went right on with her life. And, um, you know, so... Did did your uncle uh, get to keep the costume or anything from the Wizard of Oz? Were there any keepsakes that were left to the family? Uh, I have some nice things. Um, of course, the costume went to the Smithsonian. Um, we uh, and, and let's see. I'm trying to think. A lot of things went to the UCLA archives, and I want to get a little plug in because. Um, 
a, a wonderful young woman named Holly Van Leuven has written a, a real biography of my Uncle Ray's entire career. So she went to those archives and did a lot of work. So that's coming out in February, and I can't wait to read it. You know, lots of details of things that I don't know about. Um, and that's going to be called Ray Bolger More Than a Scarecrow. But, you know, I have uh, not seen, I'm not all, like I say, I, I'm really not all about the the Wizard of Oz. My Uncle Ray was, you know, a really good friend and, and a family member. So, you know, I have his tap shoes. I have um, two um, of the original music sheets from the movie. So I have that. If I only had a brain and over the rainbow, I have the, you know, I have the lead sheets from that. And, um, you know, all the things that I have from him are, are valuable to me, you yes. know? Yes. And, uh, so, um, and the Ruby slippers, uh, the Ruby shoes are, I believe someone, uh, mentioned to me the other day that they're at the Smithsonian in Washington, DC. Yeah. They're at the Smithsonian also. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know the these collectors. I I just saw something. Uh, you, you, I didn't know. Hmm. Uh, these uh, the 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 great Oz fans. A lot of what they do is collect all kinds of you know memorabilia and things. And some people have remarkable collections. Their whole homes are full of Wizard of Oz things. But I have to say, in my life with my uncle Ray. You know, The Wizard of Oz was a fantastic role that he played, but he had so many other parts. And, uh, you know, he won a Tony Award on Broadway in Where's Charlie. That was the show that my mother was in with him. And, um, you know, in terms of our family and our life, it, it wasn't all about The Wizard of Oz. It was, Michael Ray was always very, very present and excited about whatever project he was doing at that moment or next. You know, and it was, um, it's, it's, um, Certainly, the great legacy of, of his with the public will always be the Scarecrow. But um, you know, he had a he had a he had a long career doing all kinds of things. Sure, so, sure. In vaudeville, so, yeah, I mean, the vaudeville uh, days. I mean, we have we still have old movie theaters up here in in Toronto that were part of the vaudeville circuit. Um, oh wow! Yeah, sure. Lots of theaters around. Uh, you know, they used to go by the names like the Hippodrome and things like that. And yeah, and, yeah, uh, that's right. Bing Crosby yeah. and Bob Hope played. Uh, yeah, played up here. I met a gentleman once who worked uh, at one of the theaters during the the vaudeville days. Uh, he later worked with the uh, the Capitol Theater when it turned in, was turned into a movie house uh, uh -huh. up into his eighties. But he he told me the story of of uh, when Bob Hope and Bing Crosby came to Toronto. He had to go out and and uh, pr get Bob uh, Bing Crosby's pants pressed. That was his claim to fame. But did did uh, mm. did your uncle Ray ever tour vaudeville up in Canada? I, I don't know. I, it you know I, I it doesn't ring a, it doesn't ring a bell with me. But it certainly is possible. And, uh, you know, I think the woman who's written the biography, that's the kind of thing I'm hoping to find out, you know, more about. Of course, he was all over, all over New England and, um, you know, and then out to California and, you know. Did he ever cross paths with, with other vaudevillians like the, the, the Marx Brothers, for example? I wouldn't be surprised. You know, there's, there's no end of people that they were involved with. I, he was, I, 
I find things all the time, you know, when they, when he passed away, when my aunt passed away, I mean, we, we just went through the house and could take anything we wanted. So I wound up with, mainly I was interested in old correspondence and things of that nature. And he was friends with so many, so many interesting people. I mean, people don't realize what a, what a heyday it was. It, 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 he was friends with Alfred Hitchcock and, um, Oh, just so many people, you know, Sammy Davis Jr. and all these, a lot of the greats from that period. And uh, one of the things that um, Jack Haley's grandson and I have been talking about is, you know, this is a bygone era. I mean, these were kind of a different caliber of people, yes, <laughs> you know, yes. Yes, with because these amazing they histories and all the all the things they've seen and all the things they the people they knew and the experiences they had and uh because they were they were the whole package they danced they sang yeah. they they could act you mentioned Sammy it, Davis Jr I mean he, he did yeah. impressions he yeah amazing yeah. and we'll never see those types of of performers again because they came up you know uh through vaudeville into radio then into film and then finally into television so exactly uh, they, they did it all they I always remember watching the old uh, Tonight Show, and you know, you would have on the on the on the couch there would be you know Johnny Carson sitting next to him might might be your uncle Ray Bolger next to him Joan Crawford, Jack Benny, yeah, I know. Jack Benny, and now I watch these these talk shows. I have no idea who any of these people are. Who anybody is, don't know who any of them are. Isn't that so true? Right. I mean, that's of course that's my you know that that's my experience too. So. Yeah, it was almost like, you know, they used to talk about the star system. It was right. such a different time, you know, yes. back then in the old days. And, uh, oh, very different. So, uh... Did your uncle teach you to dance? No, he did not teach me to dance. Now, he was he was a lot of fun if I took friends over there or if he came over on a holiday and I had friends and stuff, he would... Um, you know that he would dance with them, and he he was always um, very uh, mm, outgoing. You know, he he just on the Fourth of July he would go up and down the block to visit all the people that were <laughs> out to see the fireworks. You know, he 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 really loved to entertain and um, meet people and greet people all the time. So he did not teach me how to dance. Um, I was always interested in writing, and he really encouraged me a lot in that. And um, yeah, they were—you know—they were very well rounded. My aunt and uncle—they were interested, very involved in politics, and you know, so it was an—you know—it was a very interesting. <laughs> it was a very interesting childhood. Right, right. Plus, plus the magical aspects of just—you know—having uh, having your uncle be the scarecrow. And, uh, yeah, it, it was a, definitely a unique uh, experience. You were with, you, you helped nurse him during his, his final days, I understand? Yes, yes, both, both my Aunt Gwen and my Uncle Ray. I used to, well, I mean, the truth is I did the grocery shopping and things like that for the last number of years, and, and that was the time I got to spend with my Uncle Ray, um, I usually went over on a Wednesday and had lunch with them, and then I'd go out and do whatever, the sh grocery shopping, whatever was on the list. And um, 
that was kind of a special time that I kind of had them to, all to myself. You know, we'd sit around and talk and visit about all kinds of things. And and then, uh, yeah, then my Uncle Ray got sick. And, uh, that, you know, that's in the book as well. And my aunt Gwen took care of him at home, his wife. I mean, they were so, they were so devoted. You know, they had so many years together. Right. And then he did wind up going to a, a small Catholic nursing home at the end of his life. And... Um, so, yeah, and then my aunt, as you say, lived another 10 years most, in the same house, you know, stayed in the same house and right. all, and it was, uh, most, most she val- was an amazing person. Most valuable lesson you learned from your, your, your uncle? The most valuable person that I learned from my uncle was that he always talked about love and, you know, always told us that, you know, love... Love is the most important thing. That's and it. Uh, every day that goes by in my life, I get closer and closer to, you know, realizing that celebrity doesn't do it, money doesn't do it, politics doesn't have the answer. You know, it always, in the end, it always comes back to love. And, and you know, the other thing was, he always used to say, you have to have a philosophy of life. You have to have a philosophy of life. So, you know, in other words, you don't just live and go along with everything. You've got to have some uh, some ideas in your head of your own. That's right. An unexamined purpose. life is not worth living. All yeah. right, uh, Christiana, wonderful to meet you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you, Richard. I so appreciate it. Thank uh, you so much. A Legend in Straw, The Spirit of My Uncle Ray Bolger, available at Amazon. When we come back, Dr. Lynn Katai, The Phoenix Lights, 21 years later, what have we learned? Dorothy. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zuma Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. All of you checking us out on one of our fine affiliate stations across North America. The uh, Conspiracy Show app, of course, a free download, the YouTube channel. And please uh, take a moment and hit the red sub button if you haven't already done so on the YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. If you like The Conspiracy Show, uh, check out my podcast, Conspiracy Unlimited. It drops three days a week, new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Conspiracy Unlimited. And just go to Conspiracy Unlimited Podcast to listen and subscribe. And don't forget my other podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. If you love rock and roll and you love mysteries, the paranormal, true crime, unsolved murder, uh, strange synchronicities involving some of your favorite rock icons, I think you're going to really enjoy The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Heard exclusively on the Jericho Network, 
as in Chris Jericho of WWE fame. And it's available at Apple Podcasts and Google Play. New episodes drop Wednesdays at midnight, 12 a.m. Eastern, the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Enjoy. On March the 13th, 1997, something extraordinary happened in the skies over Phoenix and across Arizona, parts of Nevada, on that clear evening. A parade of low-flying, mile-wide, V-shaped formations of orbs and craft glided silently overhead, attracting the attention of at least 10,000 people. The U.S. Air Force identified the lights as flares dropped by A-10 Warthog aircraft performing training exercises at the Barry Goldwater Range in southwest Arizona. Hollywood actor Kurt Russell... Uh, The Escape from L.A. star was traveling in a private plane into Phoenix, and uh, he spotted the phenomenon and quickly reported it to the control tower at the airport. Five Symington, then governor of Arizona, initially mocked the whole incident. You'll remember he called a a press conference to discuss the uh, event and then brought out somebody in a cheesy alien costume. But years later, he admitted he actually witnessed the event, stated he believes it was of extraterrestrial origin and said the military's official explanation that it was caused by flares is total bunk. So, what have we learned about the Phoenix Lights 21 years later? Dr. Lynn Katai is an internationally acclaimed physician and health educator for over 40 years who pushed aside her accomplished medical career to pursue answers for the silent, mile-wide V, Delta, and boomerang-shaped objects that were witnessed by over 10,000 people. And she photographed up close and personal prior to, during, and after what is now hailed as the most witnessed, most documented, and most important mass anomalous sightings in modern history. Dr. Lin was leading the cutting-edge era of early disease detection and prevention as Chief Clinical Consultant at the Image, uh, Imaging Prevention Wellness Center at the uh, world-renowned Arizona Heart Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, until coming forward in 2004, after seven years of anonymity and intense research as a key witness to the still unexplained mass UFO events throughout Arizona called the Phoenix Lights. Besides appearing on hundreds of national and international TV and radio programs, including Coast to Coast AM, the History Science Travel, Discovery, and National Geographic channels, Dr. Lin has recently released the 20th anniversary editions of her best-selling Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery That We Are Not Alone, and the internationally award-winning Phoenix Lights Beyond Top Secret Documentary, and the groundbreaking Phoenix Lights UFO and Crop Circle Graphic Novel Activities Coloring Book, all available at Amazon.com. Dr. Lynn Katai, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Oh, I am wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. And boy, what, a, what an introduction. Thank you so much. And uh, hello to your listeners. And I'm thrilled to be able to share the rest of the inside uh, Phoenix Light story. Because as you know, there is much more to this story. You gave some great highlights there, I have to tell you, Richard. But um, the story is, is so mind-boggling. I mean, when thousands of people... We're looking skyward purposely for a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp Comet on March 13, 1997, which was very clear in the northwest sky. They also caught a glimpse of Mile, and we just found out, actually. I mean, this has been going on for 21 years with the study of, of this sighting. It's the most um, 
documented, most witnessed, and, and most important. It's been hailed as the most important uh, mass anomalous sightings in, in modern history. And uh, things keep evolving, as we know. And just recently, Peter Davenport, the uh, director of the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, uh, divulged that from his uh, analysis of thousands of reports, uh, that and and I'm going to be talking more about that. It wasn't just one or two events. It was many events from 3 p.m. in the afternoon until 5:30 the next morning, and for weeks before, by the way. But on March 13th, there were multiple uh, craft. We think 10 different craft, uh, and uh, at least one of them was eight miles wide, according to him. I mean, we're talking incredible, incredible, massive uh, formations of lights. People just saw lights that seemed to be attached to something, and other people saw these actual craft. And if anyone's near a computer and wants to go to the Phoenix Lights Network website, which is packed with information and lots to explore and consider, and go to the GAP page, GAPG, Geometrical Animation Project, um, they'll see the illustrations and animations of these 10 different crafts from a 12-year study from the National uh, uh, UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, as well as Arizona MUFON Mutual UFO Network. And I'm going to be presenting there, actually, at the end of the month, for the International Symposium in Philadelphia on the 27th and 28th. We can talk about that. That's yes. exciting. And uh, the Village Labs, which was a clearing lab here, a computer lab, as well as Francis Barwood, Councilwoman Francis Barwood, uh, from thousands of reports, and two or more people had to see the same craft, what people were describing. Um, it, it was either one craft that could morph, or the perspective from where the person was standing, or an actual parade, and that's what they finally uh, concluded, because there were multiple things happening in multiple locations at the same time, and not only in Arizona. I mean, there's so much mis- and disinformation out there. That's why I finally came forward uh, as, a, as a scientist and as a, uh, an experiencer and as a physician to let people know they're not crazy, um, that most anomalies can be explained, but uh, there is a small percentage that cannot. And just because we don't have the technology yet to definitively define what these things are, it doesn't mean they're not real. We may just be looking on the AM dial for an FM frequency. But certainly as an educator, and you had mentioned some of my background, and for 40 years I've been uh, doing health reporting and uh, actually developing curriculums on vital health issues like AIDS and teen pregnancy and substance abuse prevention education that Discovery Education is distributing worldwide. So when this fell in my lap as an educator, um, and, and I am a key witness with the only 35 millimeter authenticated, analyzed and authenticated by military and uh, university as true unknowns, um, it became very clear that, that I really had to come forward with the, uh, with the data. So when you combine all that um, and finally coming forward uh, in 2004 with this incredible uh, information, it's, it's a thrill to share it. Uh, with your audience. So anyway, there was uh, 10 uh, craft that we do have the illustrations on the Gap page if people want to want to look at that, and the photos as well, the 35-millimeter right. photos on the photo page. What if, um, what's the latest? To uh, this day, cannot be explained or denied. Right. You mentioned uh, the work of uh, Peter Davenport from the um, mm-hmm. National UFO 
Colbert Reporting Center, and, and according to his analysis, one of these craft were eight feet across. What else have you learned? Eight miles. Eight miles. My, my apologies. Eight miles. Um, yeah, eight feet would not be particularly yeah, eight, interesting. Eight, eight, eight miles, miles across. And by the way, the technology, Richard, I mean, just the massiveness of whatever this was alone was startling. But it was totally silent. I mean, that's the other thing. And very low at rooftop level. Um, some people saw these craft take off at blank speed without even dispersing the air. Others saw orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment, and then redock with it later. I mean, the technology was amazing. In fact, one of the craft, if you look at the uh, photo, at the gap page on the uh, Phoenix Lights Network website, um, one of the craft actually split in two and then shot straight up in the air. And, and the story as it unfolded is really amazing, too, because if you, if you uh, take a listen to our, or watch our, our uh, internationally award-winning documentary, you'll see that at, at about 3 a.m., talking about Peter Davenport, there was a call from an alleged crewman from Luke Air Force Base that reported very detailed uh, report that one of these craft was hovering right over central Phoenix at 7th Avenue and Indian School about 8.30 that night, and military jets were sent out to intercept it and get gun camera from which you heard that they did. And as they approached it, the lights started to dim, and then the entire thing blinked out and disappeared. And he said he was one of the people that helped one of the pilots out of his aircraft because he was so shaken up by what happened. And there were civilians that actually saw this happen and reported later that after the military left, the craft reappeared and continued gliding very slowly towards uh, the airport. And and, uh, we have reports from air traffic control uh, that they saw it, too. In fact, I was communicating with them for two months because two months before the mass sighting, there was the exact same formation of lights that I would capture on video, one of the signature videos, handful of signature videos of that night, head-on, turning in a V-shape. You can see that on the, on the photo page. And it was so unnerving because I had had a very close sighting, and that's where it all began. In 95, both my husband, who's also a physician, and I had a very close sighting to our home uh, in Paradise Valley. We live uh, high on the mountains and have a panoramic view of the city skyline. That, uh, you know, we were very familiar with what planes and helicopters and street lights and car lights and so forth look like. This was right outside our bedroom window in a no-fly zone, so I can say firsthand I've seen this up close and personal. Uh, it definitely was not from here, and, uh, and it was some kind of advanced technology and seemed to have an intelligence behind it. And I got 35-millimeter pictures of them two years before the mass sighting. Right. And if you look at those pictures, the same exact phenomena. Dr. Lynn, we've got to take a time out. Before and during the mass sighting are in the same location then. All right, Dr. Lynn, we'll take a quick time out. We'll come back and uh, continue to delve into the Phoenix Lights. And Dr. Lynn will be at the MUFON Symposium 2018 down in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, near Philadelphia, July 27th, 28th, 29th. We'll talk more about that as well. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. From Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Dr. Lynn Kataya is with us and she'll be a featured speaker at the MUFON 2018 Symposium happening July 27th to the 29th at the Crown Plaza in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And for more information, you can go to MUFONSymposium.com, MUFONSymposium.com. I was mentioning earlier that the the timing of this is very propitious. I uh, had Dr. John Brandenburg on uh, last week, and of course he's talking about uh, Mars and so forth. And the 27th is the date of the lunar eclipse, the blood moon, and Mars will be the closest it's been to Earth in 15 years. So... Uh, the timing couldn't be better. What are you going to be speaking about at the, uh, the, the at the conference? I mean, Very specifically. Cool. Um, actually, we're offering a free presentation on Friday morning from 10 to, to noon. Um, what, what's really interesting, and as the story unfolded, uh, it, it just is very intriguing because I had no interest or knowledge in this topic at all before my husband and I saw our close sighting in 95. After thousands of people saw what I had been seeing, and actually, it was a couple weeks before the mass sighting that I, because I had been uh, documenting them on film for uh, since January of '97, and actually called around and found air traffic controllers who saw the same exact thing as I was photographing them, but over Class B restricted airspace. I mean, the, the story is really amazing when you when you look at the data. I mean, they knew they they were very alarmed because it showed up. Uh, not only in Class B restricted airspace, but not on radar. They didn't know what it was. Anybody that goes into that 30-mile radius, especially a 1,000 feet altitude, must call into the tower, and no one did. So they took their binoculars to look, and in their own words, saw six points of light that seemed to be attached to something, massive span, over a mile wide. <clears throat> but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to. And you would hear that again. Besides craft, that's what people were also seeing two months later. And one of them was a meteorologist and said that the entire thing turned as a unit and then raised very, very slowly against the wind And while I was shooting it and then moved slowly behind South Mountain. And when I said, so what was it? They, they, they had no idea. They said, beats me. I said, your air traffic controllers are supposed to know what's in our airspace. They ruled out every conventional possibility besides flares and, and balloons and helicopters and whatever. And we kept in contact up until and including March 13th um, when, again, uh, not only did I uh, videotape the signature video of the three endpoints of a giant V or triangle, but they, I conferred with them afterwards. They saw the same exact thing in the same exact spot. But what was really interesting is that a week before, I called around. This is how close I was, Richard. A friend of a friend had a neighbor who had a friend who knew the past president of MUFON, Mutual UFO Network. So I've been really connected with them from day one, and I called him up. I said, I have a picture from 95 
of the closed sighting that I'd like to find out what, what it is and have someone of knowledge take a peek at it. And I was seeing these, these orbs in different formation at a distance, which other people were as well, by the way. And he refers me to a, a field investigator the following week um, for Wednesday. He calls Tuesday to postpone. The only window of opportunity I had was Friday morning. I knock on his door. He opens his door and says, did you see the mass sighting last night? And I said, well, I saw something very similar to what I had seen two months ago, and actually I have video. And he said, well, NBC is going to be here in a half an hour to interview him because thousands of people saw these mild to larger V formations and craft, and there was a mass sighting last night. That was the first I had heard of it. And I said, whoa, I'm out of here because I had done health reporting for NBC, not only in Philadelphia, which is another little... Uh, coincidence with Jessica Savage and Mark Krim in the 70s, but I also uh, worked in, in um, Phoenix doing health reporting at NBC, and I said, I'm out of here. It's not about me. It's about the data. Take a copy of the video, share it with ever, so, uh, whoever so people can see what we saw, and I left, and by the, that afternoon, the following day, March, uh, March 14th, my video was on every news channel. And what I'm, to answer your question, from that day on, I started documenting everything that I could to find out a logical explanation, which I still do not have 21 years later. But what I do have, um, not only the only 35 millimeter photographs of these anomalous aerial phenomena, but I have amazing video from reports, TV reports, where my video appeared. And what I'll be sharing on Friday morning from 10 to 12 uh, on the 27th is how the story unfolded through the media. It is just fascinating. And then on Saturday morning, I will be talking about the theme of the, of the whole conference is the future of humanity. And as you mentioned at the top, uh, just recently, because I've been working on a curriculum, that's my passion, is youth education of vital health issues. But now I'm uh, really honing in on, on uh, youth education of this vital issue. And I produced a book, actually a graphic novel, activities coloring book for all ages called uh, The Phoenix Lights, UFOs and, and Crop Circles, uh, coloring book adventures of Sue F.O., field observer, and Hugh, H-U-G-H, Hugh F.O., and he's a little alien, and I worked with a Disney illustrator and a map maker who is unbelievable, who actually came out and measured um, how big these uh, craft were and the exact locations, and we uh, have 80 crop circles and activities. It's really cool. So on Saturday morning, I'm going to be talking about uh, how the Phoenix Lights has inspired future generations, because I include kids and I go to schools, and uh, certainly we have a, now that we have the documentary that's won over a dozen International Film Festival Awards, we present that every year at the Scottsdale Harkin Shea Theater, and, uh, and there's always a dozen or more kids that are there, and many doing um, book reports on the book. And uh, now we have this, this new graphic novel, which is really fun, and, and more, and how, how it's really impacting uh, young people because they thirst for this knowledge. And there is nothing. There is nothing in our history books. So I'm trying to change that, uh, uh, doing what, what we can to, to get the information out in a credible and professional way. And then we'll be doing a panel uh, right after that at noon um, at the conference with some of the wonderful people that will be speaking there. And then 
uh, at actually 12.15, they're also showing the documentary, which is free to the public, and I invite everyone that's, that's nearby to please come and watch the documentary, and I'll be doing a Q&A uh, after that till about 2, 2.30. So it's going to be a full day, and uh, we're getting a lot of the Phoenix Lights information out there, which is really, uh, really exciting and, and uh, important because right. it, it speaks for itself, and it's, it's really, really uh, interesting how the story unfolded, if we have time to talk about that. Well, of, of the 10,000 witnesses, uh, I mean, how, what do they, th- those that you've been in contact with, what do they tell you about the, the long-term effect of, uh, of this sighting on them? That's, that's really uh, a great question, Richard, because uh, besides the story itself, because there was no investigation, no explanation, uh, and, and here it really impacted people in real time and, and long-term, which I'll share in a second, um, there was nothing, there was nothing until uh, months later when a front-page USA Today article opened our sighting to international scrutiny. We're deluged by media from all over the world. We didn't have social media then. And the very next day, and you alluded to that at the beginning, um, the former governor, Symington, actually uh, uh, called an unscheduled press conference for that afternoon to divulge the culprit of the lights over Phoenix. And he comes marching out, one of his aides, in a giant alien head costume, we'll talk about that, um, and made a mockery of it, which was really disconcerting, especially parents that were with children that saw this thing that was like two giant shopping centers wide, um, and uh, kind of put a lid on it. And a month later, and I really tried to investigate Richard, um, and called every... uh, um, military base, and they were more interested in what I had, and they had no clue what it was. Uh, and yet, I get a call a month later. This is July 24th from one of the heads of the PR at uh, the National Guard, and she says, "Oh, Dr. Lynn, I think we know what those lights were back in March." And I was thrilled. I wanted any logical explanation. She said, "Do you believe that nobody ever looked at the log for?" Uh, visiting Air National Guard and the Maryland Air National Guard was sending off flares in Operation Snowbird, which I later found out meant diversionary tactical maneuvers, um, and that must be what some people saw. And I said, well, when was the uh, when was the Maryland Air National Guard in town? She said, Mar- March 1st to the 15th. I said, well, were they in town in January? She said, oh, no. I said, are you sure? She says, absolutely not. I said, well, I have 35-millimeter photographs of the same exact phenomena in the same exact location as March 13th, confirmed both times by air traffic controllers as being in Class B restricted airspace, over Class B restricted airspace. And she said, you never told me that. And I said, besides, you're telling me that flares that cannot keep information, that drift and drop with the wind, have huge smoke trails, and, and cannot keep information, traverse the entire state and beyond. And by the way, that was also seen in Nevada and uh, California and New Mexico. And she says, uh, I have a call coming in. I'll get back to you. Well, I'm still waiting. Yeah. And what was really interesting, Richard, and I'll get back to, the, to how it affected people, but I wanted to, to, let, to let your audience know how the story unfolded, because it wasn't until three years later, 
um, because the flare thing was really, you know, a, a logical explanation that people could feed into, and I get it. Uh, most people want a logical explanation, but it did not sit well with the witnesses, nor did it sit well with Councilman Francis Barwood, who was the only elected official that innocently asked for an investigation in May. And this is, this is I bring this up because this is how it affected people uh, not only I'll talk about real-time and long-term as far as the crafts themselves, but the ridicule and the snickering. She got plastered when she yes. even just innocently asked for an investigation. Three years later, she was running for Secretary of State on a platform to get answers for the Phoenix Lights, and suddenly we hear the three National Guards were coming into town to send off flares to show everybody the Phoenix Lights. And if you go to the news page on the Phoenix Lights Network website, and just scroll down a little bit to Arizona, the AZ family, that's a CNN affiliate uh, block there, you'll see exactly what it looked like. It was a joke. I mean, this was their shot, and they blew it. They tried to make a triangle. It broke away uh, immediately at huge smoke trails. And by the way, not one uh, witness to the true unknown saw any of those characteristics. So that kind of put uh, a lid on it, and the craft have never been um, explained. And to, to go to your answer, it was really scary to come forward, by the way. That's why I stayed anonymous for seven years and ended up with a 750-page journal seven years later. But in real time, and it's really curious, in real time, you know, we're so inundated with threat, 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 and harm, harm, harm in the media and, and, uh, and Hollywood and so forth, that uh, Dr. Gary Schwartz, who's a professor at the University of Arizona and in our documentary, makes a very poignant uh, statement that if you're so ingrained with the threat scenario, how do you think you're going to feel when you see something really massive and unusual? Well, interestingly, children were the first ones to usually alert their parents that this massive V formation of lights was coming towards them, jumping up and down, Independence Day, Independence Day. But as it got close, a calmness came over everyone, adults and children alike, a connectiveness to the phenomenon that after it passed, they wanted to run after it, get in the car. I mean, it's amazing when you really look at the data, and people tell me over and over again, no one, there is not one report in 21 years of harm, threat, or abduction associated with the Phoenix Lights mass sighting. And not only that, but long-term, that's another thing. I'm still hearing from people, especially lately pilots and military that, that saw this. It changed people forever. They, they were awakened. People ask me all the time, why, who did this? I don't know. I don't know who did this. I don't know what they were, but I know that they were. And that it really affected people at a very deep level. Some people went into the peace movement, the environmental movement, uh, changed their eating habits. It's amazing when you really look at the data how the Phoenix Lights affected people at a very, very deep soul level. And, you know, when you look at the reality of it, uh, balloons and flares and helicopters don't do that. And we're coming up to a break here. I'll ask you now when we can continue the conversation uh, a little bit after the break. But um, do you ever think about, you know, what would happen if the Phoenix Lights, this mass sighting, were to happen today with, with all of the, the, the phone cameras and so forth? Uh, I mean, it would, be, it would be a very different story, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, they're, they're actually, uh, interestingly, the Internet was just getting started. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the time, 
People ask all the time, why weren't there more pictures? Um, I mean, I, I feel very fortunate that I happened to catch 35mm, the only 35mm in the negative. They cannot be denied or explained. Um, and today, with digital, it can be manipulated. So one wonders, you know, did they know whoever did this that, uh, you know, at the time that, I, I, you know, certainly it would be very different today if people had their phones out and could really, um, you know, document everything. I'm a documentation person and, uh, and also with social media. I mean, we've come such a long way. In fact, the Phoenix Lights was the first mass sighting that was actually addressed in chat rooms at the time uh, on the internet and and we've come such a long way it would be really really cool if something like that uh, happened today and and people were out and about like they were on March 13, 1997 looking up at the sky purposely for a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp Comet if they had their cell phones with them and we could uh, really document something like this so hopefully that will happen someday soon No doubt. All right, Dr. Lynn, stay put we'll come back and continue to discuss the Phoenix Lights, 21 years later. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now, 416-360-0740, or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Lynn Katai, she will be a featured speaker at the uh, MUFON 2018 Symposium. MUFONsymposium.com, the website, July 27th to the 29th, Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is very close to Philadelphia. And uh, you can register online there. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you um, about, I mean, you, you, you broke your silence. You came forward years later. But just, uh, I guess it's been about a year since Kurt Russell, I mentioned him earlier, he came forward and broke a 20-year silence. Have you ever spoken to Kurt Russell or has he reached oh, out to you? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> but I have to tell you, interestingly, and I do not believe in coincidence anymore, Richard, um, when I called the air traffic controllers the morning after the mass sighting to see if they saw the same thing I saw, because it seemed to be in the same location, which it was, about a thousand feet altitude over Class B restricted airspace, one of them shared with me that a private pilot had called into the tower to report the lights right in front of them on that approach was him. to Sky Harbor. And I even mentioned that in my book, <laughs> which was um, published in 2004, um, which is really funny. But, I, you know, they never named who the person was. And then, uh, interestingly, when the, uh, his new Galaxy movie was coming out, um, and we'll talk about this, by the way, during my uh, presentation. I'll be showing his interview, his U.K. interview, uh, that is very interesting. He was, he was asked by a reporter, he mentioned that, um, you know, that the Phoenix Lights had happened and that there was a private pilot, and he finally divulged that he was actually that pilot. He had come home one evening two years, before, two years after. He was, he was on, the, on approach to Sky Harbor about um, five miles out, he said, with his son. They have a home here in Carefree. And uh, they, his son actually saw the six lights, just like I photographed, 
um, right in front of him, and, you know, they were startled, and he called uh, to report them. And uh, he said that he actually looked back at his log to see uh, the number, you know, to see the, what he had written down. And um, of all things, it was him. I mean, he, he had walked in the, the door two, two years later. And this is very interesting, Richard, because you asked how it affected people. Some people actually forgot all about it. It was just, it happened, they saw it. Um, in fact, in, in the book, there is a long oration that um, a report that was sent to MUFON from a uh, mutual UFO network by a psychiatrist down in Tucson. He was coming up uh, I-10, which is the main highway from Tucson to Phoenix, about two hours south of Phoenix, with his uh, family, his wife and daughter and her friend to a swim meet. And one of these craft was right above their car. And he said the, the wing span was so massive that not only did it cover both sides of the highway, but went way out into the field on both sides. And he got a chance to look at it. His wife was driving um, right, right above him. He, he watched it for a while, and he saw these giant, um, and a, a pilot would also call these giant lights like a well. The light did not extend outside of the, uh, of the circle like a canister in the, in the ceiling. And they forgot about it for months until they saw something on TV, and then it, the, the thoughts and the, the experience just flooded back, and it happened to quite a number of people, including Kurt Russell. He said that he just forgot about it for two years. He walks in, Goldie Hawn, who, who is his partner, um, was watching a show on TV, and they were talking about the Phoenix Lights, and he said it was the kind of thing uh, like Richard Dreyfus in, in uh, Close Encounters right. when... Uh, he just, you know, all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, I recognize that. There's something about it that is very familiar to me. Right. And, uh, and then suddenly it hit him that he was that, the, a private pilot that, that came into uh, to Sky Harbor and, and saw it and uh, was very excited. He looked at his log, and, and there it was, uh, right in his log. That's so, an interesting phenomenon. Um, it's because great when, when celebrities, and by the way, Alice Cooper <laughs> also came to one of uh, the showings. Every year I host a, uh, a, a screening of the documentary, and we have speakers such as Travis Walton, who will also be at the, uh, at the MUFON uh, International Symposium uh, the end of, Ju- of July uh, to speak as well and show his documentary. Um, and uh, he came up to me one year, uh, sold out every year. It is the only mainstream event. It's wonderful that uh, we keep the Phoenix Lights alive, and people are so interested in what happened. And he came with his daughter and wife uh, to one of the showings, and he said, came up to me and he said, you know, I saw it, too. <laughs> so there's a lot of people out there right. that, uh, that saw it, and, and as you alluded to, too, uh, also after um, 10 years, right after the 10th anniversary, our former Governor Symington, for whatever reason, decided that he was going to share that uh, he actually saw one of the craft and is an awarded military pilot. Uh, it was definitely not flares, uh, but what he described, it was otherworldly. Right. This idea of like f- seeing something like this, so dramatic, and then sort of forgetting about it or maybe suppressing it or whatever happens. I mean, I've heard this again and again. A friend of mine had a, uh, a sighting. He was traveling in a car in Iran, uh, and uh, his, his father and, and stepmother were in the car with him. And they both saw this enormous craft 
I come out of the sky and and it, it seemed to be swallowed up by the um, by the earth by the desert. It mm. came and and uh, went underground. They both watched this, and then he said after it happened. It was like nothing happened. They just continued along on their journey driving, and no one said a word, and they never exactly. spoke of it again. What is that? Yeah, I mean, there, there's something about it. I mean, certainly many people pulled over their cars and saw it, you know, so close up and personal that, um, you know, they, they did remember what happened. But there are people that, for whatever reason, it just, you know, is, is buried until something awakens it again. And then when it does, it's like a floodgate. Uh, opens up and they they realize it. Oh my goodness! I mean, I really experience this thing. I mean, every everybody comes from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different worldview. Some people can't deal with this topic, and some people don't want to. And that's okay. That's okay. Everyone in their own time. But that was one of the reasons I came forward, Richard, because as a physician alone and as an experiencer, I certainly knew firsthand, up close and personal, that when something paranormal happens to you, it it, it is earth-shaking, it is, it is mind-boggling, and uh, as you say, some people just bury it, and, and other people can't deal with it, and it's, it's, it's very um, cathartic to share. We talk about that in the documentary. Uh, it, it's healing to share, and, you know, that was one of the reasons I came forward, to say, hey, you know, it's enough. I mean, it's, it's, it's enough with the snickering and the ridicule and the uh, discrediting. It's time we get this topic out in the open. And we address it, we accept it, and we study it so we can find out not only who's driving these things, but also move forward in our own evolution. And the more we talk about it and the more we can really talk about it openly and honestly and, and get it out there, which, which is one of the reasons I came forward, just get the data out there, let people decide for themselves. Um, more and more people will be, it is a positive transformation, not only in real time, as we talked about, for the witnesses, uh, who really, um, I mean, it, in, in just real time, it, it changed their whole perception of, of uh, the fact that we're not alone, that there is something more in the universe, um, but long term as well. And by the way, uh, there's another little aside, and I don't know okay. if we have I'll time get you to, to talk no, about I'll, it now. We will on the other side. We'll take a quick time out. Dr. Lynn stays with us. The Phoenix Lights here on The Conspiracy Show. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Dr. Lynn Katai, Phoenix Lights, is uh, with us. You had a, a, a quick story that we didn't get to just before the break. We were talking about how people sort of forget about you know, the paranormal experiences like this, and then all of a sudden something triggers, there's a triggering event maybe, and they, and then it all comes flooding out. You, and you had another uh, story related to that, I believe. If you'd be kind enough to, to uh, put the correct um, link on uh, my Facebook page, uh, people will please uh, visit the Phoenix Lights Network website and 
Facebook page for the latest updates. Um, I know that there are there are people that are listening uh, to the show right now, and I really appreciate that. And uh, it's important to not only share the hard data, but what's really interesting, and you asked me about the the, uh, the personal effects of this, there were a number, and this is another little aside that, that is so profound. I mean, not only did I find out that there is a very, very strong Native American connection, if we have time, I'd love to get into that, uh, to the Phoenix Lights, but as far as uh, the witnesses, uh, when I was interviewing, quite a few of them had shared with me that they had had near-death experiences as children that was reawakened by the mass sighting, which I found really poignant because I did too. And it was like, whoa. I mean, I, I lay it all out in the book. So people are, are um, you know, I welcome people to, to take a look at it because that alone is, is a kind of a groundwork for what has happened now. But um, what was really amazing to me is I thought, geez, could there possibly be a connection between all unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body experience or unexplained aerial phenomena experience that has a mystical light associated with the experience. And lo and behold, again, when I started looking, I really did my homework <laughs> to find out the history, which is a vast history. You don't have time to get into it today, but I do in the, in the book and, and touch on it in the documentary. But what really got me is that there were studies at university, the Omega Project by Dr. Kenneth Ring, like a five-inch book, uh, as well as uh, Dr. Uh, Bruce uh, Grayson at the University of, of Virginia, and um, even Dr. John Mack at a Harvard University were all coming to the conclusion that there was indeed a connection between all unexplained phenomena. I laid it out very simply in the book. Not only is the experience, whatever the experience is, whatever the unexplained phenomena experience is very similar, but the after effect is so profound. The awakening, the, the positive transformation, the uh, connectedness that one feels to the universe and to the earth and to each other that may never have felt that before is so powerful. It's life-changing. And I started calling all unexplained phenomena an up, a UP, an up, because it is an up. It really changes you forever. And, and uh, over and over, and I've received thousands, thousands of uh, emails. Again, I offer people, I had mentioned that it's very cathartic and healing when you share, even just with one person. And if you go to the website, the Phoenix Lights Network website, there's a contact uh, link on top. And, and I love hearing from people. We even have a sharing page on the, on the website. And I'm hearing more and more from pilots and military now that are retired that are coming forward. Um, and uh, as well as the Phoenix Lights Network uh, website, uh, Facebook page. Um, p- please message me. I love to hear from people, and it's very, very healing when people share. So oh. that's another aspect that, uh, that it really has touched people, not only at a profound level, but that I did find the connection between all unexplained phenomena that is, is very profound and poignant and important. Uh, of the, um, the 10,000, again, are you hearing stories about strange synchronicities or coincidences in their lives as a result of the sighting? Oh, I love that you brought that up, Richard, because 
Um, most of my book talks about that. I mean, I, I'm a healthy skeptic. My book is The Phoenix Lights, A Skeptic's Discovery, That We Are Not Alone. When you're a physician, you must be open to, to any possibilities. But I have to see it to believe it, and I have. Uh, it's not a believing anymore. It's a knowing. And, uh, you know, I have to, I have to say that, um, you know, it's, uh, to, to, Really get into this. I mean, it's it's amazing how. I mean, what 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 was your question as far as that goes? Well, just the coincidences being reported, well, synchronicities. Well, you know, as far as the coincidence, I don't believe in coincidence anymore. And here's here's the example. I'm glad you brought that up because six months before, this is one of many many. As the story unfolded, there were just the puzzle pieces just kept fitting fitting together. Um, six months before the mass sighting, uh, I was invited to present my substance abuse prevention education program at the Gila Bend Indian Reservation which is uh, in the basin. If you look at the photo page, there's a picture of the topography. Right south of the airport is South Mountain. And a few miles back are the Estrella Mountain Ranges. And there's a basin in between uh, where the Gila Bend Indian Reservation, very sacred ground, is located. And they actually intersect at one point. The South Mountains on the left and uh, the Estrellas um, uh, are on the right. And I went to their one school, and I presented, and I helped them out. They don't really talk to outsiders. And I noticed after the mass sighting that my picture seemed to indicate, and it's right there in the, in the 35-millimeter negatives, that these phenomena kept popping up right where South Mountain and the Estrellas intersect. And so I called them up and I said, did, did anybody happen to see strange lights uh, on March 13th? And they started to giggle. And I said, is that funny? And they said, are you kidding? We've been looking up at them for centuries. We call them sky people, light beings. It's part of their culture. I had no idea, Richard. That was the first I had heard about it when I really you know, looked into this. I found that indigenous cultures worldwide have been very open to these phenomena and the reality that there are other beings out there and even visiting us. And in fact, the Hopi right here in Arizona have protocols to invite these phenomena in. Some believe that their spirit world coming, their ancestors coming to give them uh, comfort and guidance and knowledge and inspiration. And I certainly have been inspired, I have to tell you. But they also mentioned that the Estrella Mountains got its name because of the lure and because even the Spaniards of the day might have seen these phenomena, star in Spanish. And they also believe that there is a portal or gateway in that area. And again, if you go to the photo page, on the Phoenix Lights Network website and take a peek at the, at the data, the unique uh, collection of these anomalous aerial phenomena that have been analyzed and, and authenticated as true unknowns. Uh, they keep popping up in that area, the same spot. So, you know, maybe, uh, maybe that's true. But certainly uh, the bottom line is that there, once you uh, wake up to the fact that we're not alone and that there are other possibilities out there and let's be real i mean now we know from the hubble and the kepler telescopes that there are trillions of other galaxies out there much older than ours in fact our solar system is a very young solar system <clears throat> it's only four to six billion years old and uh... there are scientists out there that are postulating that there could be intelligent sentient beings out there billions 
billions of years ahead of us, and, and the ingredients of life are out there. We know that oxygen and nitrogen and organic materials and carbon and so forth are out there, and we're made of stardust. So, uh, you know, the reality is, the very real reality is that uh, we are probably not alone. Uh, of the 10,000, has anyone, did anyone report uh, any other strange phenomena like missing time? Well, that's another really good question, Richard, because um, the pictures that I took uh, in 95, uh, to my husband and I, it was only a couple seconds, I mean, a couple minutes, uh, two, three, four minutes tops. Uh, the year after the mass sighting, there was another interesting sighting that uh, I alerted um, the other people that had taken video on the night of March 13th that I was seeing these lights again for the first time a year after the mass sighting, and just had a feeling they might come back. And we were all ready with our cameras and actually got, and, and the footage, by the way, is in the documentary, uh, a 40-mile-wide, 20-minute array of straight lines and mirror images. And the final thing is a giant triangle. That seems to be a, a huge scenario in these phenomena, uh, like a pyramid, like what my husband and I saw right outside our bedroom window. And uh, I thought, geez, you know, I had been told... And I really stayed anonymous, by the way, for seven years. But I had met a, a few people, including Linda Moulton Howell, who had recommended that I get in touch with Navy optical physicist Dr. Bruce McAbee uh, about my data. And I really hesitated. But at that point, I thought, you know what? I had alerted the other people. And interestingly, serendipitously, the people that took video on the night of March 13th, and there's only a handful, were north, south, east, and west. So again, we got this 40-minute array, um, 20, excuse me, 20-minute array, 40 miles wide, and I thought, geez, I'm going to send footage to Dr. McAbee. And as an afterthought, I put the first and the last picture from the 95 close sighting in the package. He calls me a couple weeks later. He says, um, by the way, how long was that sighting in 95? I said, I don't know, two, three, four minutes tops. He said, confer with your husband. And interestingly, my husband was inside. I was outside on the uh, balcony taking the pictures, and uh, he would never talk about it. And I said, he's not going to talk about it. He said, well, you've got to confer, which I ended up doing. I said, just tell me how long you think it was. And he confirmed to him it was also just a few minutes. He said, that's impossible. I said, what do you mean? And for anybody that's out there that's by their computers, that can go on the photo page at the Phoenix Place Network website. It is a visual. He says, first of all, and he was the first one to notice that the same exact line of lights the phenomena at a distance. It was over Class B restricted airspace that I would capture two months before the mass sighting and during the mass sighting was in the same spot there in 95. Ah. And as I mentioned earlier, some people saw these orbs detach from the main object, go out into the environment, and then redock with it. Maybe that's what happened. But at any rate, um, you know, as, as he says to me, uh, you know, please confer with your husband. I did. I went back to Dr. McAbee. He says, not only is the same phenomenon in the background, he says, but look at the skyline. Uh, and I had no idea what he was talking about. He said, there are many lights, groups of lights on in the first picture that are off groups in the last picture. He said, that doesn't happen in a couple of minutes. I'd like you to do an experiment. And by the way, he wrote up a 21-page report that's on our website, and then I talk about it in the book as well. I go out on the balcony one night every hour, the next night every half hour. I also did every 15 minutes, sent him the pictures. He did such a meticulous analysis 
to see when the lights start going out. Now, I usually take a bath between 7 and 8. In We're, the just about out of time, doc- We're just about out of time, Dr. Lynn. Um, the, the upshot of this is, is... Well, the upshot is that he, he actually presented it at the 1999 MUFON International Symposium as the first, if not the only... Uh, photographic evidence, authenticated photographic evidence of missing time. Uh-huh. There's a lot more to this story that I hope people will check out the book, The Phoenix Lights of uh, Skeptics Discovery, that we are not alone to uh, to read about. And also I'll be sharing it in uh, my lectures next week next at the uh, MUFON International Symposium in, in Cherry Hill, Philadelphia, in Philadelphia uh, okay. on the 27th and 28th of July. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn. We'll talk again. Thank you. Bye-bye. Keep looking up. All right. Dr. Lynn Symposium.com. My thanks to uh, Ian, Albert, Ryan, and Young North, the apprentice on the board. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light, what I say in a whisper. Proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.